This is Other Voices. We're listening to varied views from local people who might otherwise not be heard. I'm Melissa Hale Spencer, editor of the Altamont Enterprise, which focuses on Albany County, New York. I'm talking to Reverend Robert J. Lydens, affectionately known throughout Altamont as Pastor Bob. He has written a memoir. In 50 chapters that serve as parables, some of them light and humorous, others of them heavy and soul-searching, Lydens writes of becoming a minister and serving first in a rural Kansas community for three years and then for 31 years as pastor of the Altamont Reformed Church. He tells of how helping people through difficult times is humbling beyond measure. His goal as a pastor, now retired, was not to frighten people into believing in Christ, but to warmly welcome them. It started out as a living room conversation, not unlike many I had already experienced during the first two decades of parish ministry. He sat somewhat uncomfortably in his wheelchair in the living room, and I sat facing him, pen and pad in hand. On his request, we were going into great detail planning for worship, his own memorial service. He had been diagnosed with end-stage cancer several months earlier, and he had evidently and understandably spent much time and energy picturing what that service would soon entail. We spent the better part of the afternoon in the exchange, allowing me to scribe lists of possible eulogists, hymns, and scriptural texts. By the end of the afternoon, he and I were pretty well spent, but we agreed our work together was accomplished. We took a break for a brief nap, followed by a light supper. While he prepared for bed, I did the dishes and then sat quietly on the porch, awaiting the moment that would usher in the second phase of our bargain. Earlier, upon my arrival, he and I had made a deal. I would, of course, assist him in the drafting of his memorial service, what pastor would object to doing so. But departing somewhat from the normal such pastoral routine, I had said, under one condition. When he looked somewhat askance at me and asked what that would be, I had tearfully indicated I yearned for him to tell me what he had learned, what he had discovered over the course of his more than seven decades of fruitful life. He had taken a moment to consider the proposed bargain and then had agreed, saying, of course, I'd be honored. As it now darkened outside, he invited me into his bedroom. He was still in his wheelchair and asked for assistance as he struggled into bed. It took a bit, due to the pain the metastasis in his bones was clearly causing him. Once he was settled, covers pulled up to his chin to keep him from shivering. I said, So, Dad, what have you learned? He looked me in the eye, then over my shoulder. He looked not at the wall beyond, but at something farther away, or something within, And he said this, the kingdom will come anyway. That was it. He said nothing more in that first minute. Echoing him, I finally asked, the kingdom will come anyway? 
He nodded, appearing to be both intensely serious and profoundly free at the same time. Yes, the kingdom will come anyway. Then he explained. Dad described how over the course of two decades in mission work in the Middle East, followed by two more decades of service through the wider church in North America and the Far East, he had often wondered. He had wondered what difference he had made, what lives he had touched in any kind of healing manner, what broken situations to which he had offered truly redemptive service. Then he said, Now at the end of my life, Bob, I've learned I don't need to know the answer to those puzzling, even troubling questions. I don't need to know whether my life has made a difference in the building of the kingdom of God, because the kingdom will come anyway. He stopped and continued to look over my shoulder, out there or in here. He took my hand and said, Bob, I've learned to be free rather than bound up. I can be free doing what I believe God called me to do without being immobilized by the unanswerables. I've learned to be free knowing that God has blessed me and even used me in some circumstances to be part of God's work. But God does God's work in spite of what I and you and everyone else may do. That makes it all right. That makes me all right. We sat in silence, holding each other's hand, warmly, peacefully, freed. Dad passed away two weeks later. I miss him deeply, but I celebrate with him because clearly, at least for himself, he had figured it out. He had seen truth, the truth who had set him free. Because the kingdom is coming anyway. Oh, that's marvelous. Just marvelous. Um, and it's so typical of the way you tell these stories. Um, that is the second to last chapter of a book that's made up of, I'm looking to see how many chapters. Um, there, Each one is constructed um, not exactly like that one. Each of the 50 chapters is is sculpted. <clears throat> I just wish you could talk a little about, I mean, a normal way to tell that story would be, my father was dying, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. But you set it up so that we're drawn in as a reader, or in this case, a listener, and we're jolted when we hear you say, so dad that this is your father, yeah. and then we're jolted again by this bargain that you've struck with him and his advice to you. I wonder, does anything in the structure of each of these carefully constructed vignettes have to do with a lifetime of giving sermons um, so that you're aware when you're writing or speaking, that you're holding something back in order to shape it in a way that's more forceful? Well, it's an interesting question, Melissa. Um, in some respects, I think the, the stories that I try to retell uh, in my memoir do have an element of kind of my sermonic inclination uh, that gives them some structure. And by that, I mean the following. 
Um, I, I was introduced way back in seminary by some wonderful instructors um, to the following, and that is, uh, they said to us sitting in our preaching intro class, um, you have about 30 to 90 seconds at the beginning of any sermon um, to say something that will grab the attention of those who are sitting in the pews. Uh, it's your responsibility to grab their attention. It's not their responsibility to give you their attention back for more than that time, because they have plenty that they have to think about of very serious nature that they've already walked into the sanctuary with. So you have to basically encourage them to recognize that you have something from a text in Scripture um, that is worth listening to. Um, Oftentimes, what I found myself doing in preaching would be to allude fairly quickly, not simply to kind of a, a life question or concern that might grab folks, but to a story that might have uh, an interesting quality that would grab the attention and hold the attention. And then typically, um, once the story would unravel, um, I would attempt to try to make connections between that story and whatever the scriptural text would be. The truth be told, um, and uh, I'm simply one in an innumerably long number of preachers who would say this, you know, the best storyteller was, was Jesus. Um, and he rarely engaged in, uh, in laying out kind of theological treatises or truths um, in any kind of logical formation. You know, he was a parable teller, a storyteller, um, and oftentimes he, by design, would simply tell the story and then stop um, and would allow the listeners to take the story and meld it into their own experience. And presumably, in, in varying ways, the different people would hear the stories and take from them things that would be appropriate to their own life experience. In fact, I've, I've sort of laughed on occasion over the years when I would talk about this particular dynamic with some of my ministry peers, that we as, as preachers, when talking about Jesus as a parable uh, teller, have to laugh about the fact that on those occasions some of the gospel writers describe how the disciples pull Jesus aside after he has told a parable or two and say, Jesus, tell us, tell us what that parable meant that it just absolutely frustrated Jesus that they needed to have the parable explained, because in some respects, by definition, the parable doesn't need to be explained. It should be simply taken in and allowed to kind of uh, begin to interpret each individual person's uh, life story. And in some respects, um, that's what I've tried to do in putting together um, my memoir. These... Uh, each of the, the chapters you know, describes one or more story uh, from my own life experience, um, and you know it's it's hard for me not to try to uh, to draw out a point towards the end of them. But I try to do that minimally, so that the reader, the hearer, uh, is at liberty to do it for herself or himself. Um, that's going to be a far more meaningful kind of interpretation approach. Than, than my uh, telling a story and say, now let me tell you why I told that story and what that story really means. To the contrary, best to simply let it, you know, sit there. Um, and that's, 
kind of what I do with with most all of the uh, the stories that uh, that I've introduced into this memoir. Yes. Long answer to your question. No, it's a great answer, and it made me think of so many different things as you were talking. First off, the idea of being told as a young, about-to-be preacher, you've got 30 to 90 seconds, because we're always aware of that in the news business, you know? But you, <laughs> you, did, you yeah. did that with your stories. You would put an opening paragraph on most of them that would draw you, hook you right in. And then as the story unfolded, that paragraph would appear again in the context of the tale you were telling. So that was a device that worked really well. And um, another thing as you were talking that struck me, I didn't originally want to say these or like a a series of parables because it sounded almost like you're such a humble person, you wouldn't like that comparison. But yeah, that struck me that way too. And Early, early on, certainly you grew as a minister, but as you're portraying yourself as a young minister, you allow yourself to be set up in a narrative is kind of the fool. Um, as you were answering the last question, I, I came to mind the scene you created when you were newly in a church in Kansas, and you were so disturbed because you had asked the parishioners as they were leaving, they had complimented your sermons, and you were asking them, you know, what they liked, and you came home and couldn't eat the Sunday meal, and you told your ever-supportive wife about how distraught you were. They weren't listening, and you expected her to put a compassionate hand on your shoulder, and she said, Bob... (laughs) You're missing the point here. And it's what you just described to us. It's what you already knew. But the way you wrote it at the time that you were young, you recreated that so that you, as a character almost in in the book, could learn that people were hearing what they needed to hear through you as you gave a sermon. And um, it's just, I think, quite amazing that as a writer, you're willing to put yourself back in that time period and make yourself look foolish <laughs> to teach, you know, to teach a lesson but, about but, what you learned. Well, it, 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 it wasn't, and I say this both with a smile on my face, but also very seriously, it wasn't hard to write about myself as being a fool, simply because, particularly early in retirement, when I would go back and, and revisit these memories that began to, to stir within me, I found myself uh, enormously struck by how much I had to learn um, and how much my parishioners in both of the congregations in Kansas and in upstate New York were patiently uh, party to the, 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 the teaching process that far more uh, learning was going on by me from the congregation's help, and I think in some respects the parishioners um, through me and what I had to say from the pulpit or otherwise. And that's not to understate the latter, but it is to state with with honesty that I found that I learned an enormous amount from my parishioners who very patiently would call my attention to some things that I was missing. And, you know, my wife was one uh, in the occasion that you just mentioned when she uh, helped me to recognize that, uh, and, and just, just by way of background for the listeners, the, the, the instance that you just described came after about three or four Sundays when, um, after the worship service, people were coming through the line and would say, a fine sermon, Pastor Bob, 
And after about the third or fourth Sunday, I began to ask folks, how so, in what ways? And they would tell me what they heard. And I made mental note that they were telling me things that I had not said, I thought. (laughs) And my interpretation of that was, these folks don't know how to listen at all. They're not good at being able to sit and pay attention to a short 20-minute sermon. Um, and, and I really kind of started getting frustrated that, that my congregation members were just lousy at being able to pay attention. And I finally unloaded on my, my poor wife about this. And she, as you just noted, said, you don't get it, do you, Bob? <laughs> and, and she then said, you know, if you think that what you are saying is what each of us needs to hear individually, you're missing the point entirely. And as soon as she said, it's like, oh my gosh, she's right. Um, I I will say what I understand to be uh, something that derives from the scripture when I'm preaching. But when God's at work, he will, God will enable uh, the listener to hear what each and every one needs to hear in each and every one's different uh, life circumstance. And that was what the congregation was basically helping me to learn. <laughs> it just took me a while to begin to, to uh, make that connection. Um, and it was enormously freeing, because then I had less to worry about from week to week, and I think I probably speak for most preachers in this regard, not not getting overwhelmed with trying to sort through what is it exactly that God wants everybody to hear, <laughs> which is impossible for me to uh, to come to simply because there is not one thing that God wants everyone to hear. That indeed, to the contrary, I simply am a tool that will will speak from my own heart and then trust that God will enable each person to hear what each needs to hear. And to a certain extent, I think that that's what happens appropriately in a worship context, but there's a part of me that also says that that's kind of an analogy for um, for our life experience, you know, in our friendships, uh, in, in the classroom, for, uh, you know, uh, for teachers with students, um, and in marriages, uh, and in parent-child relationships, that, that we are not meant to be, you know, purveyors of the truth so much as agents for enabling each one of us in in relationship with you know, with one another um, to hear what each of us needs to hear from our Maker that that gives us freedom um, and it's and it's freeing to know that that is the role that we can each play. It's also honoring to know that each of us has a role with one another to that end. Anyway, I'll yeah. stop there. No, <laughs> that's excellent, and it leads me to a, another question I had that has to do with so much of your work that wasn't about preaching, that in times was actually about silence. The passage that you read at the start of this podcast, near the end, you say, we sat in silence holding each other's hand. And throughout the book, you were at so many important passages, the worst times of people's lives, the best times of people's lives, and so many, in so many instances, there's a hug, there's a hand-holding, there's silence, and the ministering doesn't seem to have to do with the Word or preaching. And the one that stands out in my mind really more vividly than any other is 
there's a family that's deeply, deeply troubled. Their son has been convicted of rape, although I don't know that you ever use the word rape. You allude to it in a way that we know what it is. And he's going to be sentenced. And you're asked to drive the family to the sentencing. It's 140 miles away. And you describe in just excruciating detail the expression of everyone in that car, in that family, their posture, their faces were right there. <laughs> and you you write in the midst of this, um, words seemed unnecessary, almost offensive. So if you could just talk a little about your ministry, but in terms of things that aren't words, just so much of what you write about that you did for people wasn't from the pulpit, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'll, I'll start with the latter. Um, there's no question that, um, as I've reflected on it in retirement years, that those experiences in ministry that, um, in retrospect, were the most significant for me were uh, engaged in pastoral care contexts, as opposed to worship contexts. The latter were very significant, and many of them were enormously meaningful for me personally and hopefully for the congregations too. But uh, for me personally, being with people through life circumstances, uh, joys as well as great sorrows, um, was to be in a place of the highest honor. I mean, it was humbling beyond measure to be welcome to walk along, alongside of folks uh, who are going through major, major life challenges. Um, and the reality is, I, I think as the years unfolded, I, I began, and I think this is somewhat just a process of maturing that comes for all of us with the passing of years. Uh, though early in my years, you know, one is trained as, as someone in seminary preparing for ordination and ministry to kind of learn truths, to learn theological principles and doctrines and to be able to recite them and adhere to them in the way one teaches and preaches. As important as those, in a sense, um, truths uh, that can be spoken are, um, the reality for me is that as my ministry unfolded, I found that what mattered far more than speaking the truth was simply to be with, um, to walk alongside of, especially in instances where there were questions that did not and never will in this life have answers, or at least answers that are um, substantial and satisfying. That, that in fact, what my experience is as a pastor is that questions that friends within the parish typically would ask were questions that maybe the church institutionally has tried to answer and give an explanation to. But those, in some respects, at times can be vacuous, if not meaningless, um, and that what matters more is that with someone who is asking the unanswerable question, one doesn't try to answer the unanswerable question, but simply is with the person and allows the person to live with the unanswerables and and indeed to, to confess, if not even celebrate with them, that I also do not have answers to those unanswerable questions, and that it's best sometimes simply to be quiet with, <laughs> rather than verbose with, 
um, those who are going through uh, the, the hard or even the, the celebrative uh, times of life, um, that, that sometimes words truly do get in the way. Um, yeah, so that's a, a preliminary set of thoughts given your, your question and comment. Yeah, no, that's fascinating. And so much of what you do or describe doing in the book has to do with just being with people and understanding them. And when you do give advice, you do it often through stories of your own, like the young man that's trying to decide on a career. And you tell this Uh wonderful story about your father um, having a walk with you when you were in a similar time in your life, deciding on seminary or graduate school or volunteering in the Middle East. And he he made you see that God is not like Bob Barker (laughs) on The Price is Uh Right. And there aren't just like you're choosing three doors and you've got the right one, the one that God wants, that rather... You have to trust what, or just maybe, uh, just, I shouldn't be putting your story back at you. You <laughs> you should be telling us, but it's a way of informing people by not telling them what to do, but by telling well, them. So the instance that you, the instance that you're describing, I had a, a, a young man who was, uh, uh, you know, trying to sort through what was he supposed to do with his life and uh, very seriously so, and it's a sharp young guy. And in visiting with him, what came to mind is what you're beginning to describe, and that is a memory that is very vivid for me from uh, the summer between my junior and senior years in college when I was trying to sort through what I would be doing a year hence after graduating from college. Um, Didn't really have clarity about it. And um, uh, my dad and I took a walk, and uh, during that conversation, when he asked me to kind of explain what it was that I was troubled by, I said I just didn't know how to, uh, to, to, to sort through what it was that God wanted me to do. And uh, his comment that just kind of threw me off was, it sounds as though you think that God is like Bob Barker. And I had no clue that my dad knew anything about Bob Mar- Barker and The Price is Right. I mean, Dad was always at work or traveling. He wasn't at work watching TV at 11 o'clock, uh, you know, in the morning, but he knew about Bob Barker, and what he did was to suggest that, you know, the the, the comic nature of, of The Price is Right is that you've got three doors for the person at the end or the persons at the end, and they choose a door. They don't know which one has the big prize or which two have kind of the smaller booby prizes, and it's purely a guess, and one is right and two are wrong. And what my dad suggested to me is that when he was hearing me um, kind of think out loud about how I was to discern God's will. It was as though I was suggesting that I had three things that I was thinking about possibly doing upon graduating. Um, which one was God's will for me, and which of the other two, therefore, were not? And I wanted definitely not to choose the booby prize doors, uh, but to, to choose rightly the, the door that uh, that was of God's will for me. And my dad suggested that that image just misses the point that we have in Scripture, and that is, if, for example, we have three good choices to choose from as we move through life, and they're all healthy and and, and, um, not immoral or amoral, um, what we are meant to do is to recognize that behind all three of those doors is God. 
that God isn't behind only one, but is behind all three. So what God wants us to do is to open one of the doors, trusting that when we open that door and walk through it, we will not be alone, but God will be there with us. Um, and once he kind of spelled that out, which that's sort of in contrast to the whole Bob Barker, Price is Right mentality, um, then we can walk through with, uh, with excitement, knowing that we're going to be in God's care, whichever door we walk through. Um, that, that was the story that I remembered uh, from my own experience, that when I was talking with the young guy who came to me in my pastor's office some you know, 25 years later, and I, I described for him, and he, the, the, the young guy made the connection quickly, such that by the time I finished the story, he said, so what matters isn't that I make the right choice, it's that I choose rightly. And I said, absolutely. And as I note at the end of that chapter, if I recall, uh, having uh, read it earlier, um, I, I remember his leaving, and I remember his kind of chuckling out loud. He didn't think I was hearing him, but I heard him say, wait till I tell Mom and Dad that God isn't like Bob Barker. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that had me uh, chuckling. But okay, well, you know, I, I think he, he made the point, but now he's going to tell the story, and who knows how it's going to be told when he gets home. Uh, well, that's... But, that's typical of your storytelling, though. You saved that little nugget for last, and we had a little jolt as we left that chapter. But now I'm going to turn to a really a difficult question, and it's one that you raise in your book, and it's about, is the church irrelevant? You have described a hot July day, it's Sunday, you're giving your sermon, and the guy across yep. the street starts mowing his lawn, and... Yep. You feel anger, you feel despair, but you end with this sentence, and I just wish you could kind of unpack this for us a little, um, because I do think the place of church in community and in our nation at large has, has changed over my lifetime. Um, you write, I decided it's time to confess our irrelevance and to commit ourselves to rediscovering the relevant one we are meant to embody. Could you just talk to us a little about that? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just for the sake of the listeners, the, 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 I was preaching and the doors were open. It was a hot day and uh, this guy starts a lawnmower across the street from the church building, and it was so loud, people in the sanctuary couldn't hear me. I could tell by their faces that, that they just couldn't understand what I was saying, no matter how loudly I was speaking. And it hit me, uh, as Melissa, you are saying, um, that that gentleman who, interestingly, occasionally would attend our worship and whose, uh, whose offspring attended uh, our Sunday school and vacation Bible school, so he knew the church, that he was he was mowing, knowing that it was going to be disruptive. Now, he may not have thought that explicitly, but he should have been able to know implicitly that he was being disruptive of the worship hour. The door was open; they, he could have heard us singing. Um, and my my take was that he wasn't doing this with any intent to uh, be disruptive or with any animus towards the church. I, my my sense was it was as though the church wasn't even there, that there was an irrelevance. There was almost kind of a sense that we were in a, a spot where the people just weren't even recognizing the presence of the church community. And that was just soul-wrenching for me. Um, and as you just noted uh, later in that day, I found myself 
struggling to try to understand what does it mean to say that the church as an institution, and more importantly, the church as a congregation and as the presence of the body of Christ, may be perceived as having no relevance to the society around us and so forth. Um, I don't know that there is a, a an answer to how to move beyond that stated problem, other than, as you quoted me as saying, I found myself saying that what we must do as the church community is to lift up the relevant one, and that is the person of Christ. Um, and it is what Christ came to embody and came to, to uh, display and to call us rightly to, not just as the church community, but as the world community, relative to justice um, and reconciliation and moving beyond uh, the brokenness that defines how we relate one to another. Um, that is, it seems to me, what is of dire need in our culture, in our nation, in our world, especially right now. Uh, I'm not sure if it's, it's possible to ever say that it's never the case that it's right now, but right now we need a church community that lifts up who Christ is and what Christ came to reveal about God's will for humanity with regard to uh, reconciliation, restoration, uh, lifting up those who are forgotten and, and set aside um, to be brought back into the heart of the human story. Um, if and when the Church uh, does that lifting up of the relevant one, then the Church, it seems to me, will be recognized as having relevance. Otherwise, if we simply go about kind of taking care of ourselves um, and, and being primarily concerned about our own uh, subsistence or existence, um, then people will mow their lawn during worship because um, the church is neither something that they're drawn to nor really have any animosity about. And that's not the church um, that I believe Christ calls us to be. Um, I, that I could go on for about 45 minutes. I know. There's so there. many things I wanted to touch on, and we're going so <laughs> fast through our time. But in the last uh, answer, you were talking about lifting up those who are forgotten. And one of the things yeah. that struck me in your book was your idea, you call yourself a Christian universalist, and you have this one chapter where you've, describe this philosophy to some of your fellow reverends, and one of them has come by specifically to tell you that you're a heretic, won't discuss yeah. it, leaves you, ends the friendship, and you have this way of not really being angry back at him, but deciding you <laughs> you invoke the Godfather, but you know deciding mm. it was a business thing, not a personal thing, and letting it go. But if you could just kind of talk about what that Christian Universalist philosophy is, and it seemed to relate to me a bit about what you just were saying in the answer to the last question. Okay, um, yeah. I'll, uh, uh, I'll, I'll share briefly with you um, my faith, um, and I won't try to describe that incredibly uh, challenging conversation that I described in that lengthy chapter in my book, um, but it was precipitated by the following, and that is 
um, I shared uh, by the invitation of our local judicatoria, the, the local assembly of churches in our area around Albany and Schenectady, um, when uh, one of them knew, uh, in a sense, what I believed, um, what I believed. And I shared uh, the following, and that is that in contrast to the traditional uh, reformed theological understanding of salvation, and it's not unique to the Reformed churches, but to many, if not most, Christian churches, uh, both Protestant and Catholic. The presumption in, in, in most is that salvation ultimately is a gift of God given to those whom God chooses. And the second part of that formula, there are some that do not receive that gift, some that are allowed to remain in a condemned uh, damned condition and are uh, allowed to uh, not be redeemed and, uh, to use the expression, go to hell. Um, early in my uh, adult years, as I began to, to delve more and more deeply into the nature of God's grace, of God's um, unconditional love for his creature, including human beings, including us, I found myself struggling with that traditional understanding that some would be saved and some would not be. And, and quite frankly, um, by the time I became a father with the birth of our first child and then with the other two subsequently, being a father, being a parent, um, gave concretizing uh, impact uh, to the following extent. Um, I am now convinced that God, who is our parent, our, our father and mother, um, could never uh, show preference for some and not for others. Um, the suggestion that God, by God's grace, would redeem some through his son, but not others through that same son, um, makes no parental sense to me, not in a logical way, but in a deeply uh, heart, soul, emotional sense. In the same way that looking at our three kids, I love them and always will, no matter what. And none of them less so, much less more so. If, if that is my fundamental instinct as a human being, um, it could not be otherwise other than in extremis when it comes to the way in which God looks at and works on behalf of every single human being. So I call myself a Christian universalist, and that's simply a fancy way of saying I believe that in and through Christ, every human being in the end <laughs> will be drawn into the family of God. That there is no one, no matter what we do or do not do, what we say or do not say, what we confess or do not confess in this human life, um, will be barred from fellowship with our God for eternity and one with another. Um, and in that regard, one of my ministry goals was not so much to engage in saying that which would frighten people into believing in Christ, so much as to warmly uh, welcome people to believe in the same Christ who welcomes everyone into God's family, barring none. It's that 
perspective on salvation that the friend that is described in the chapter that you alluded to took great offense, and understandably, and I was not surprised, and others comparably have taken great issue with, with my understanding of salvation. Um, and, um, you know, if, if one were to read that chapter, uh, that's where conversation about uh, the Godfather comes in, and I won't take any time to, to describe that. I'll leave that for the book to consider. Yes, we, we have it, to it, entice it, people it, to read the book. So um, I should just uh, let you tell, before we're completely out of time, where people can get this book. Uh, um it's available on Amazon.com. Okay. Um, the publisher, who was gracious enough to publish it, um, has seen fit to put it uh, uh, available with uh, Amazon.com. So all one needs to do is to go online and uh, uh, type in my name. Uh, it's the only book that comes up with my name. And I do have to say with a chuckle that um, if, you, if one does uh, type in Robert J. Lydon's uh, Amazon will ask, do you mean Robert Luden's, L-U-D-E-N-S, as in the the cough drops? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and, um, but the answer to that is no, it, it's, uh, it's Leiden's, and that's where it can be found. Okay. Well, I'm going to conclude with one last question where I think we could all use your expertise, and well, that is in grieving ourselves or in trying to help people we love when they're grieving. There was a chapter in the book where I had to see that I was guilty. Um, a mother had lost, her, her 10-year-old daughter had died. And yeah. you went to see her, and she repeated things that her friends, who, who meant well and were trying to comfort her, were saying. And she advised you never to say your daughter is in a better place, and never to say at least you still have a son and daughter. Yeah. They just made her feel more misunderstood and isolated and miserable. Yeah. So yeah. you are somebody who really, it seems to me, kind of specialized in comfort. What, what, is, what is a good thing to do when you have a loss or you are trying to help someone who has? Well, it seems to me uh, two different things come to mind. One, relative to the chapter you're just describing, I think if and whenever we succumb to the temptation to trying uh, to try to answer or explain um, that which is beyond understanding, namely the loss of a loved one, regardless of how that loss comes, whether through tragedy or just the passage of years and the ending of life, when we try to give an explanation or assuage someone's um, sense of loss with an explanation such as was given in the case of this poor mother who lost the 10-year-old daughter. The two comments, well, you know, she's in a better place. Well, no, the mother said to me, she was in a very good place here with our family. She's not in a better place. Uh, and, and secondly, um, that, well, you know, at least you have two other children. And the mother said the children, those two children aren't meant to replace the first. No explanation um, given to someone who is grieving is is um, is appropriate, and in fact, it, I think it dishonors the griever. Um, to the contrary, I think what honors um, the griever appropriately is simply being present to, uh, being alongside of, and crying with, 
and even at times verbalizing, you know, the uh, the unanswerable questions, and and even at times raging at heaven along with the person who is raging at heaven. If there is anyone who can take our anger, it is God. Um, and, and just as an aside in that regard, for me, one of the more powerful dynamics we find in the Psalms is that the Psalms include many that oftentimes aren't printed in the back of, of our um, of our hymn books that, you know, don't print all 150 psalms, but only the 27 or whatever that, that are a little nice and equally uh, fine to re- repeat during worship. But there are some psalms that rage at God. Um, and I'm convinced those psalms are enormously important and significant and have the potential for being healing when we basically are with those who are raging to rage along with them, and that that was one of the gifts to our, our forebears in uh uh, in Israel, uh, that that God said, you're allowed to. In fact, I'm instructing you to to bellow out your anger and your frustration and your loss. Um, get it out, and in fact, give it to me because I can take it. <laughs> Don't worry about raging at me because uh, I'll I'll carry it for you. Um, and I'm convinced, in some respects, that that's exactly what we are meant to do one with another: is to to uh, to be in grief with and not try to get someone to to be apart from his or her own grief. Well, I'll stop there. That is excellent. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts, any ideas you'd like to leave our listeners with? Uh, boy, I, I don't have uh, anything of, of concrete nature other than I will take this opportunity, Melissa, to say that the opportunity to write this book is rooted in my deep, deep affection and appreciation for the congregation, both in Kansas, but also the, especially the congregation there in Altamont. The Altamont Reformed Church uh, family is incomparably wonderful. Uh, they showed me grace and joy and uh, faith in ways that I could never have dreamt possible, and to have had the privilege, uh, along with Mary and our three kids, to, to be uh, in Altamont and with the ARC congregation, um, beyond thankful. Uh, it's a gift from God that uh, I will forever uh, be thankful for. So I will I will leave it at that as an expression to those who may be hearing this who are from the Altamont area. Uh, that's a congregation that... Uh, uh, is is a blessing to uh, to Altamont, and I hope folks uh, who may be looking for a church home will find it because they'll find their congregation that is enormously embracing and love. I'll leave it at that. 